Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman were born in the 60s. They grew up here in Los Angeles, where we make Bullseye. Wendy's father, Mike Melvoin, was a session musician, mainly on piano and organ. Lisa's father, Gary, was also a session musician. He played percussion. They were members of the legendary Wrecking Crew. They played on everything. Wendy and Lisa went to each other's birthday parties, played catch, that kind of thing. In their early 20s, the two started dating. Also around that time, Lisa started playing keys and singing with Prince. You can hear her work on Prince's breakthrough album, Dirty Mind. Not long after that, Wendy joined on guitar. Soon, they were integral members of Prince's band, The Revolution. Together, they recorded stone-cold classics like Purple Rain, Raspberry Beret, Kiss, When Doves Cry. They left the revolution in 1986. They released a few albums of their own under the name Wendy and Lisa. We'll play a banger single from them in just a minute. And in the years since, Wendy and Lisa have kept collaborating, even after they broke up as a couple. These days, they do a lot of work composing scores for TV and movies. They've written music for Heroes, Dangerous Minds, Crossing Jordan, and now Cruel Summer, the new teen thriller, which just premiered on Freeform. They won an Emmy for their theme on Nurse Jackie. Before we get into my interview with Wendy and Lisa, two things. First, they are an absolute delight, as you're about to hear, so we are dedicating all of this week's show to them. And second, let's hear a track from the two of them. This one is from their 1989 album, Fruit at the Bottom. It's called Are You My Baby? Wendy and Lisa, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. Nice to be here. I, I want to get into your lives and careers more broadly in a minute, but I wanted to start with composing, particularly TV themes. I mean, you, you two are Emmy Award winners at this point. Um, what do you get when someone is looking for a theme for a TV show? Like, do you get a call first that says, we want Wendy and Lisa, or do you submit a demo, or how does it work? Usually it's been that we've been scoring the show. We get hired to score the show, and then it seems like main titles are sort of a last-minute decision. 
um, <laughs> a lot of times because they're not sure if they're going to use. It didn't used to be use. that way. Yeah, it didn't used to be. It used to be a little more deliberate. And we've done a lot of really good themes when we get to work with the graphics company or whoever's doing the title design. And if we get a chance to go kind of back and forth, sending music and picture back and forth to, to match cuts and to develop the whole thing, um, like we did that on Carnival, and it was really a great collaboration. And also on Nurse Jackie, it, you know, it went through several different lives in, until it ended up what it was. And um, um, yeah, I, I think it's really great when you get to collaborate with the title house. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that. You know, that it's funny because main title sequences aren't as revered as they used to be back in the, let's say, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So nowadays, they really only have time for between 5 and 11 seconds for a main title card that kind of says it all about your show a lot of the times in just these streaming services because people are binging and they don't want any, they don't want a 30 second title sequence, you know, that goes between an opening act, the first act of a show. So we've had to the past handful of years, even since nurse Jackie developed these sounds that will represent a show in 10 seconds. And it's a tall order, but we're, a lot of times in the position now to ask the producers once we're hired, are you thinking about a main title sequence? We are Emmy Award winners for that very thing. And it might be nice to do something special for your show. So we always push for that. But in the end, it, it doesn't normally end up that way because they're looking for so much to happen in between five and 11 seconds. We're working on something right now where the opening act's first cue has to just tail over the cards. So it's a completely different orientation. But when we do get offered or when we push and it's accepted to actually do a main title sequence, we really dig it because we love to work with the, like Lisa had mentioned, the title house. So it's really great to work with them and then work with the showrunner on what they're trying to say in that opening title sequence. It's, it's a lovely job. And if you get, you know network tv for instance they're still doing you know big main title sequences but we haven't been on a network show since we did shades of blue for uh nbc that was the jennifer lopez cop show with ray Liotta. we that was the last main title that we actually did for network and since then uh we haven't actually done an actual well, I guess the CW would be considered one of the networks. Mm -hmm. So we did do that. So, God, there's been, we've done so much. Um, anyway, it's great to be able to do a main, a longer main title sequence. It's always fun for us to do is to create kind of like the, um, what do they call it? A deck, the, the idea, the uber narrative of the show in, you know, a 30 second title sequence is really lovely to do. I mean, TV title sequences are such an important part of television because especially in anything where you might get dropped into it, not from the very beginning, the job of that title sequence is to basically tell you everything about the entire show. Yeah. Like if you think of, I don't know what the most iconic title sequences are, but you know, Star Trek 
where there's both that soaring music and that sort of narrative that tells you what exactly is going to happen. That's correct. You know, uh, you think of like great sitcoms where they introduce all the characters and the situation visually while music plays that is the, you know, whatever the odd couple theme or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, the Neil Hefty not odd couple theme is fantastic. Yeah. Did you by the way know that that song has lyrics? Yes. <laughs> Just like MASH does. Just like the title sequence to MASH. Yeah. I literally can't hear it now like in a I don't know where you hear the odd couple theme other than in your head without thinking yeah, of right. everywhere they go they are known as the couple. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's great. But do you get like a brief? Sometimes you've been working on the show scoring it. So you're pretty familiar with what the showrunner and directors and writers want. But when you're not, do you get like a, do you get a breakdown of what kind of thing it should be? Not normally. That's the joy of us working with the title house. If we've done already done cues for a pilot, we have a pretty good idea of the sounds and themes that we need to incorporate. And when we're initially doing something for a pilot, we literally think about themes and how that's going to translate into something like, you know, main title. So give me an example of a theme that you're particularly proud of and how it developed, how how those iterations and communications between the you and the title house and the showrunners and so forth uh, developed over time. Well, Nurse Jackie, the one we won the Emmy for, I think I'm really proud of that because it won an Emmy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, so it's much it deeper, much deeper than that. I mean, Lisa and I wanted to create a sound for Edie Falco's character that was playful, that sounded slightly secretive and magical, that sounded slightly um, a little bit tough, a little bit tough. We got these visuals, too, that from the producers and the writers where they had all of these little artifacts and little trinkets inside the title sequence cards, like her wedding band that she hides in her pocket, a stethoscope. Um, there, there, were, there were pills, pills, right? So there's lots, a, of, lots of secrets, her hiding things, and, and we wanted to incorporate as much of those sounds in our heads that we kind of put a narrative to and create this beautiful title sequence. And it worked really well because we also got to work with the title sequence. So if you saw Jackie take her wedding band and put it in her pocket, we were able to actually score that movement so that when you watched the visual, you could see, Jackie, that your eye and the audience could actually focus on that moment. So it was really a really conscious effort to make those things pop out musically. And, and then we, you we know. We did some fun things, too. Like for our shakers, we used um, pill bottles, like bottles of aspirin or something, whatever it was, Advil, or 
just because we were seeing pill bottles. She opens the medicine cabinet and there's a bunch of pills that pill fall out. That fall out. So and the shakers come in. So we use pill bottles for the shakers and stuff like that. It's just it's fun when you get a chance to work with the visual. Do the two of you remember how old you were when you first met? I was two years old. Yeah, I was like five. Mm-hmm. I remember it perfectly. It was in the backyard of a valley house that my mother and father had. My sister and brother and me were in our backyard, and the Coleman family came over, and Lisa was in the backyard with me, and I was playing with a big red ball, and I was bouncing it in the backyard, and I bounced it to her, and she said to me, that ball's cockeyed. And I'd never heard that word before. <laughs> Being two years old, I didn't have a lot of room to find out what that word. But it stuck with me because of she tr- she connected the angle at which it dropped, and it would go. It went to the left instead of directly to her. So she said that ball's cockeyed. Yeah, because I was a good catch, and you know, for me to miss it was a big deal. So that ball was cockeyed. Anyway, I remember <laughs> it well, and I was two. Do you remember it, Lisa? I do remember, and I I remember their house, particularly the living room, because Wendy's father was a piano player, and the living room was completely taken up by his grand piano, and I remember crawling underneath it to get through the house, (laughs) because it was, you know, it was pretty much the living room was a piano. Yeah, he had a nine-foot Grotrian Steinweg in the middle of the living room in this tiny little house in the valley, so it was like it made no sense. I like that the two of you were two and five years old, and you were essentially playing in a giant metaphor. Yes, exactly. No (laughs) subtlety there at all. That's really good. Well spotted. (laughs) Well spotted, my man. Well spotted. (laughs) So both of your fathers were session musicians in the Wrecking Crew, like one of the most legendary groups of session musicians ever. Did that mean that you saw a lot of each other when you were kids? Oh, yeah. yeah. We had the, we went to the same schools, had the same doctors. Our mothers were, you know, uh, weekenders constantly, and the kids would go from one house to the other house. I mean, it was... Yeah, we were all... We were kind of grew up in the same kittens yeah we were a bunch of kittens exactly (laughs) did you think it was cool that your fathers were musicians or did you think it was weird and annoying oh no i (laughs) loved it there was great people around us all the time we we were exposed to everything you know and and and, you know it's funny you know both lisa and i had mothers that were huge music fans massive music fans and loved everything and played everything and exposed us to everything and our fathers were like the studio guys right but they didn't have the same well that's not true gary lisa's father who's like groundbreaking percussionist and then you know probably had the first oberheim and arp 2600 in his little studio in the house in 1970 they were all really. Uh, they explored everything, and our but our mothers, I think, are the ones that kind of exposed us to what the emotion was behind music more than the technique of music, which was more on our father's side. I think. I mean, that's how yeah, I. Yeah, I mean, that's it. great because we got such a a whole world of appreciation for music from 
you know, our fathers who worked and were professionals at it, and our mothers who were talented, but also forced into being mothers and raising kids, and and they taught us how to love music. Mm-hmm. You know, like my mother was a singer, a jazz singer as a teenager, and she used to lie about her age and sing in clubs and stuff like that. But of course, when she got married, you know, she quit and to raise a family and all that stuff. So, but she had this passion inside her for music, and um, you know, she would sit us kids down and play us a Mozart symphony or something crazy like that, and you know, we would sit there as long as we could pay attention. <laughs> but you know, we got it. We understood why she was doing that, and you know how how vast the world of music is and how we could always find a home there somewhere in, you know, in many, in, in lots of ways, you know, yeah. in different styles and things like that. I also remember our, my mother was the one that used to play the records. My father used to make the records and my mother mm-hmm. was the one that was always putting a record on the turntable. So that was a big influence for me. I was listening to the two of you on our sister show, Heat Rocks, and you you were talking about the Prince album Around the World in a Day, and you just casually kind of dropped, oh yeah, like around our house, there was a lot of music concrete and uh, Stockhausen and stuff. Oh, big time, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was was trying to imagine being like a 10-year-old and... uh, (laughs) You know, oh, there's yeah. like yeah, yeah. yeah. There's to, like modern classical music. I mean, we in your used house. to we used to have a kid band. The the Melvoins and the Colmans had a kid band, and we used to pretend we would like write that kind of music yeah. down in my father's studio. We'd all grab instruments and do our own version of Stockhausen. You know, yeah, it was pretty funny. We <laughs> we play Stockhausen. Uh, on Halloween, when people would come, when trick or treaters would come, because it was so weird, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it scared people more than you know how haunted house sounds. They were like, "What the is that?" It's so true. Ice. That's my Stockhausen imitation. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're rich, little, but for twentieth yeah. century <laughs> classical music composers. Exactly. That's funny. I can do Harry Parch next. (laughs) Was there enough of that going on in the house that you as a kid or like as an adolescent, you know, as a 12-year-old or or 13-year-old thought that it was enjoyable, like something you liked, or was it a weird thing that was around? I I think it... I realized how unusual it was, not necessarily weird, although I, when I got into it, I think there's a personal tendency to control your own weirdness. But I realized how unusual it was when, you know, meeting other kids and other families that were so different, you know, that didn't have that. And when they'd come to my house and experience my life, it was mind-blowing to them. And to me, it was just my life, you know, it's how I was growing up. It was pretty normal to me. So, you know, I took all the enjoyment I could out of it. But yeah, just having my best friend from school come over or something like that, you know, and and we had 
a studio in their house. And that was like, what? <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, you don't have a drum set and amps and a guitar and keyboard? And I was like, no. <laughs> yeah. Who has that? We, Who had this, that? we had the same thing in our house, too. But, you know, we also went to this school. We went to a Highland Hall, which was a Rudolf Steiner school. And that school's back in the years we were there, which is a hundred million years ago when it was just full of like hippies. Take it easy, take it easy. We were around a lot of kids that had families that were artists. So we went to one of those art schools, you know. I did have certain friends that would come over to our house and they would be like, your family is so different than ours. You know, the kids would be like, this is so weird. We love you guys. You guys are the cool family, <laughs> right? Because we were in music business and art. So we, there was a lot of that that made me realize that we were different. But it's not like I wanted, you know, Richard Hodkinson's life down the street. You know, I was perfectly content with the life we were having at our house. Were there things that the two of you wanted from those regular lives like was there ever a time when you were like gosh i wish that i just like came home did my homework and then went into the pool in the backyard and then like my oh, yeah. dad was having a cookout yes and we all drove a buick yes right yeah sure, sure. of course and, yeah. and especially when i was when I had to practice and I was really young and my mom would call me into the house to practice, you know, piano, you know, it was horrible. It, it, I loved it and I knew I wanted to do it, but it was always like, oh, man, you know, why can't I just play outside? You know, I'd be outside with my bare feet and in the dirt playing silly games and, you know, you kind of want to do that. But, you know, once I sat at the piano, it, it always had its own hypnotic effect and <laughs> I was its slave. I would have loved to have come home every day from school and had dinner on the table and maybe a, you know, the nuclear family at the table, but my father was always in a session. So back in the day you had single doubles or triples. And back then, because our fathers were first call guys, they were doing triples every day so yeah. we'd never see them they were never home never home so, our so mom, what, what you mean by that wendy i'm gathering from context is that they were at the top of the list for yes. people to bring in to play on something when somebody just showed up at the studio and said i need a guitarist or i need a percussionist or whatever and so they were doing they were basically pulling triple shifts yeah. <laughs> yes. in in yeah. recording yes terms. basically yeah they'd have a woman i mean um your father, my father, I guess the studio guys had a woman's service called Arlen's. Oh, yeah, Arlen's. <laughs> it's a, it, was answering a, it was an answering service that would book your dates. And my father had his black book and Arlen's would call and say, you mm -hmm. know, be at the Phil Spector session, be at the Sinatra session, be at the I don't know, whatever, whatever TV show, Mannix, you know, it did, I don't know, whatever it was. And they'd have Arlen's book these dates, and that's what it was like. So they were gone all the time. Gone. I talked to Kevin, my producer. I texted him like an hour ago, and I said, Hey, Kevin, can you find something that both Wendy and Lisa's dad played on? And, you know, <laughs> both of your dads worked on 25 million records. That's right. 
uh, the one that the one that he pulled was "That's Life" by Frank Sinatra. I thought yep. we'd listen to a little bit of it. Oh, yeah. cool. That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune When I'm back on top, back on top in June I said that's life That's life And as funny as it may seem Some people get their kicks Stomping on a dream But I don't let it, let it get me down that's my dad on the organ. <laughs> that's the best. That was the part, like, listening to it. it like, obviously, I've heard That's Life 25,000 times at the grocery store. Right. But I did not remember that it opened with that organ. Well, get this. So if you think about that organ tone on that Hammond, think about Good Vibrations. My father did the organ on that as well. So it sounds, it's the exact same tone. Yeah, I mean, that sound quality re- honestly reminded me of Soul Records more than it reminded oh, yeah. me of yeah. Frank yeah, Sinatra. Yeah. For sure, for sure. <laughs> Did the two of you think that the records that your dads worked on were cool, or were Lisa's you, like, rolling father your got, I thought, I always thought Lisa's father got the cooler gigs. <laughs> like, he got to play on the Steely Dan records and all that stuff, and my father didn't wasn't the call, the keyboard player for those sessions. It was, like... Either Boddicker or Mike Lang or there's a handful of other keyboard players that were called in for those gigs. My dad got a lot of the straighter big band TV. Well, they both got tons of orchestra dates on TV and film, you know, all the Jerry Goldsmith sessions and the Elmer Bernstein sessions at the Newman stage at, you know, Sony Studios and so, um, but I always thought that Gary got cooler gigs, but my father played on a million. I mean, he played with Tom Waits and Bette Midler and Streisand. I mean, just it's, the list is massive. My father came out of the kitchen one day. I went to go visit him. This is right before he passed away. And he was in his kitchen and he goes, he used to call me Dolly. Oh, Dolly, I just, I got a printout of some of the stuff that I've played on in my career. And he drops the scroll like it's a Warner Brothers cartoon (laughs) and it goes the length of the entire kitchen and it's all typed in like triple columns of all the artists he's played with over the years. I wish I had that list. I don't know where it went, but it was astonishing. It was astonishing. Yeah. No wonder they don't remember. Like I'll ask my dad about, you know, do you remember that session or something? He has no idea. He doesn't remember anything. <laughs> He's like, he did so many things and, you know, I don't know. Things were crazy back then anyway. So the two of you grew up together and also ended up uh, essentially, maybe literally, I'm not sure, married for a really long time. Did you help each other realize that you were gay when you were kids and adolescents? For me, Yes. That's Wendy speaking. Yeah, I was 16 years old and, you know, it was already very weird for Lisa and I because we grew up together. But then we spent a couple years apart 
I went back east to go to finish a couple years of school. And while I was gone, I didn't see the Coleman's. So Lisa and I grew into young women. And by that time, I was questioning my sexuality at that very young age, 13, 14, 15. And then um, I came back and saw Lisa one summer after she had done, had been away doing the Dirty Mind record with Prince. And it just was, you know, it's a cheese ball as it is. We fell in love with each other, you know? Yeah. It was kind of funny because I'm older and I just didn't expect that little Wendy Melvoin would be, you know, I'd suddenly look at her differently because I was more uh, like best friends with her brother, her older brother, because we were all similar in age and... You know, it was like the the twins were a two headed monster. That you know, it was like the our little little sisters. So it was kind of funny when after those few years we spent apart, and she came back to L.A. and um, and we were like, oh, hello, <laughs> <laughs> and that lasted for you know twenty years. I mean, it's still yeah. I mean, we were a couple for twenty years and realized that. The couple part, romantically, wasn't our thing, but we were able to miraculously hang on to the parts that do work so well, and that's us as partners in music and in just, dare I be as dorky as to say, this thing called life. But we have partners, you know, independent of each other romantically, and we have children, by different people and but we've you know this this relationship has lasted even work-wise 40 years even more with wendy and lisa still to come stay with us it's bullseye from maximumfun.org and npr this message comes from npr sponsor discover discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Wendy and Lisa. They're a longtime musical duo who have been writing and performing together for almost 40 years. They were members of Prince's Revolution and helped Prince record some of his greatest hits. They've also written and recorded albums on their own together, and they have an Emmy for their work in TV and film. Their latest project is a dramatic thriller called Cruel Summer, 
It just debuted on Freeform. Let's get back into our conversation. I want to play a print song that neither of you played on. And I think when I play it, uh, at least, Wendy, you will know why I chose this song to play. It's from his 1978 album, For You, uh, the, the debut record, and it's called Soft and Wet. <laughs> I wish I wish our listeners at home could see Lisa air drumming to that record, <laughs> playing that playing that funky disco uh, beat. Disco beat, yeah. <laughs> uh, Wendy was was that really the first Prince song that you ever heard? Yeah, it was the very first Prince song I ever heard. I was underage at a nightclub in L.A. called the Starwood, which is infamous in its own right. It had a rock and roll room, and then it had a disco room. And this is 19... Summer of 78. And I was underage. It was probably between... I think it was 13 or 14. And my sister and I went to this club, snuck out of the house. Sorry, Dad. Sorry, Mom. And I was on the disco floor, baby, and the DJ put that record on, and I was completely messed. And, and mind you, I was always a funky kid. I loved everything that was funky. I loved everything that was soulful. My favorite records were all the deepest, darkest of all the funk records in the 70s. And then I wanted to be John McLaughlin from Mahavishnu, so I was a complicated listener. <laughs> Wait, what were the what what were you like listening to like Mandrill or something? Sure, I listened <laughs> to Mandrill. Yeah, of course, sure I did. And I also listened to you know like most thirteen year olds. Yeah, no, I I was deep. I was deep. You can't. I mean, my friend Q Tip and I send records back to each other to see whether or not we can stump each other with that era. <laughs> And we, and he can't stump me. He can't stump me. He just no, can't. Good. Yeah. So, um, so by that time, I was on the f- dance floor, and I was. I heard that record. I ran up to the DJ, and I was like, "Oh my God, who was that girl?" <laughs> I thought it was a girl. I did, and uh, he said, "No, it's not a girl. It's this." young kid named Prince. And that started my love affair. I was completely obsessed with him. And then when I found out Lisa had gotten that gig on the Dirty Mind record, and she really didn't know who he was, and I got wind of it back east when I was going to school, and I was like, does she have any idea who she just got a gig with? And then I came back to L.A. one summer and went to the Coleman's house and Lisa was back from Minnesota just from her audition and put on the cassette of Dirty Mind and I heard Lisa say, I'm just a virgin and I'm on my way to be <laughs> wed and I lost my mind. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't well, believe it. It was really funny too because I, I didn't know Prince. I, I didn't know his music and I was really, you know, 
kind of a snob, I think, when I think about it. I was heavy into classical and, you know, was really focused on that. And then all of a sudden I ended up in Prince's band. It was, it seemed like a, a real... It was cognitive uh, dissonance, you know, it yeah. really was. Like, what? But she what was perfect. Lisa? <laughs> it was, it was perfect. <laughs> Prince happened. Yeah, totally. And Prince happened. That's good. exactly right. And then that happened for Just both right. of us. Yeah. And he, he adored her because, you know, he could kind of do everybody and everybody's position in a band. He could outdo you. <laughs> you know what I mean? He couldn't wow. do Lisa. He tried for years and years to do, to be Lisa, to do, to channel her when he'd play piano. And he could never do it. And so he kind of, in a way, I think, coveted the fact that uh, she was so singular and um, such a singular voice musically. And uh, I think it's probably one of the more important musical relationships he's ever had because of that. Wow. I mean, when I think of Dirty Mind, which is maybe my favorite Prince record, certainly one of my favorite records of all time. Same here. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, when you, when you talk about like Prince just a couple years earlier, you think like, this is a person capable of immense greatness. And then you listen to Dirty Mind and you're like, oh, wow, this, yeah, this does not let up the entire no, time. It, it is does all perfect. Not. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's only 32 minutes long. And it's, it's so groundbreaking. Every time I talk to people about Prince and they're like, want to know what to do a deep dive? I say, you, ha you have to listen to Dirty Mind. I mean, that's where he was the most sweaty, dirty, uncomfortable yet convicted and mm -hmm. dark and yet sexy and playful and manipulative and mm -hmm. smart and what he was doing with sounds by trying to take that new wave era and put it into a funk environment to try and outdo like the Rick James of the worlds and the zaps of the world and all that kind of stuff. He was, it was everything. It was, and then he looked like this weird, like transgender chick. He looked like, a, you know, like he could have been in, you know, um, Paris is burning. You know what I mean? It, just what? The only other person that had done anything like that was David Bowie, but he didn't, David wasn't even that person off off the microphone, he became like a really kind of straight guy. Prince was that guy, on and off. The sound of Dirty Mind is, is what I think of the most, and a lot of that sound is keyboards. So where did all those sounds come from? When you first started with Prince and you're like walking in cold uh, into this weird situation, like... Where did all that stuff come from? He was really specific with that stuff. He he would most often already have a sound picked out, and he would just point me to it and say, "Here, play this, play this sound," you know. And and he it would he was not afraid of presets back then, and you know they were still new. You know, you'd get an ARP Omni or something, and it had a, you know three buttons. That you could choose, you know, synth or synth string or just string, you know, like, wow, this is the magic combination, like this, you know, and Prince would just turn everything up, just like whoosh. his philosophy was 
pin it. Pin the meters. Just pin it. Just anything in, in life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> even, even if you're just walking, pin that. <laughs> so, um, so it was just like that. Like the keyboard sounds are so like aggressive, you know. Wendy, would you say that you schemed your way in uh, or did you fall in <laughs> accidentally? Um, you know, if I was to really pathologize it, I'm sure I schemed my way in. I wasn't aware of it at the time. I was just like, oh, my God, I'm in love with my girlfriend and I get to be around the most important artist of all time for me. So that was the extent of it. But I think in the court of law and I was in front of a judge and a lawyer was grilling me, I'd have to say I was really hoping that he'd take notice of me and that I could jump on board for sure. But at the time, I was just happy to be in his presence and soak it all in and be with my girlfriend. So, And then I just got lucky. He heard me practicing my guitar in her hotel room, and then it just happened. So this is a question that I ask a lot of artists, uh, but I, I think it's it, it plays differently in the context of both of your fathers having been like workaholic professional session musicians. What did your parents think of your jobs as musicians in this very oh, particular my God, kind of band? They loved it. My mother was such a fan. So was my father. They loved it. They loved every second of it. My father, you should see the clip of my father announcing us at the Grammys. You know, it, you know, he was the president of Neris at the time and you know, he, there's clips of him and you can see the, like, how proud oh, he was of us me. that we were playing yeah. the Grammys and accepted all these awards for Purple Rain. I mean, he was like, and my mother was like, Prince loved my mother. She was such a groupie. It was just, yeah, no, it was never a problem. Never. And then, of course, Prince fell in love with my t twin sister and hired my brother to play on a whole bunch of things. Both of our brothers were integral parts in around the world in a day and you know it all became kind of like a you know family affair yeah. exactly <laughs> lisa what about your what about your parents i think my mom was excited too and my dad had to check it out first he was a little more protective and a little bit freaked out that i wasn't a concert pianist you know going that route so but i remember him coming to see us at flippers which was a skating ring in west hollywood so we played at the skating rink and my dad came and it was the dirty mind show so there was a lot of nasty bits so it was a little, i was a little nervous because my dad was standing right there and i had to do the i'm a virgin thing and you know, sing head, sing head. you know, <laughs> basically sing head about and head, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but he thought the music was really good, and we were a tight band, and he was like, "Okay, I guess I get it," you know. And as time went on, and the band gained more success, and you know, we really did become quite an amazing band. He he was really supportive, and was like, "Wow, you guys are really good." It's funny to think that. Of all the stories that I've heard over 20 years of doing this show from people about uh, artists, about their relationships with their parents and their parents' relationship with being artists, them being artists, like the two of you had the 
clearest path to parental approval of any of them, which was not, neither of your fathers could deny the band was tight. Like that's right. That, like ultimately, like whether they like Prince records or not, that's right. They knew we were good. Yeah. They knew we were really good. I remember my father. My father was more worried about me and Lisa as a couple when he found. Yeah, I was about to say, did your parents know that you were a couple? <laughs> they were all really, you know, if you could imagine seeing a dog with its ears cocked and their head cocked huh? when they found out, like, what? Huh? Isn't that incest? Isn't that? <laughs> so I remember my father trying to be so good with me and Lisa. And he looked at me and he goes, well, just as long as you two are productive. (laughs) (laughs) Productive. (laughs) That was what he said. And I said, yeah, I think we got that covered. And then I remember him saying something. How how many sessions are you doing a day? Exactly. 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 And I remember Make out as much as you want, as long as you're doing three a day. Exactly. And he said said something like, well, something, he made some reference to cruising, which was a term that they used in the late 70s for gay men who go to clubs and cruise for, it's like hinge. And so he used that reference, like, about me and Lisa, like, I hope there's no cruise. Like, I don't know know. what he He said. He thought that we were part of some dark, deep leather, like... I don't know. Like he was seeing Al Pacino S&M in the movie kind of Cruising. Scene. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I was like, no, dad, dad. No whips and chains. No. No, no. This is no a one on one deal, man. <laughs> Just as long as you're productive. We'll finish up with Wendy and Lisa after a short break. We'll be back in a minute. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Fidelity Wealth Management. VP Dylan Sanders shares why it's important to understand clients' values. People quantify dreams differently. So it's essential to be able to sit with a client and listen and ask questions and just begin to understand what it is in their life that they want to pursue and help them create a roadmap to get there. To learn more, go to fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC. One, two, one, two, three, five. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors and... Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor and I'm a medical enthusiast and we create Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. Now, lately we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster, but it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guests are Wendy and Lisa. They're musicians who have been collaborating for nearly 40 years. The two played in Prince's band The Revolution on the classic records Purple Rain, Parade, and Around the World in a Day. For the last 10 years or so, Wendy and Lisa have shifted their focus to film and television, composing scores and theme songs for a bunch of different projects. You can hear their latest music in Cruel Summer, which is airing now on Freeform. Let's get back into our conversation. 
Did you feel like Prince chose the members of the revolution in a kind of sly in the family stone way to have a, you know, a, a representative of each great group of human beings? I think they were yeah. all each yes. representatives of him. They were personalities of him or ones that he wanted to be. I think he really wanted to integrate all those sides of himself and the band represented that that ability to do that and he did it well. I mean Bobby Z was the one that used to say that once I joined the band he finally got his Fleetwood Mac and Sly and the Family Stone. And Bobby said he used to talk to him about it all the time. He you know, he to me it felt more like what I just explained a second ago, which was like an integration of who he was by getting, you know, splitting himself off and getting these people in this band that were all parts of him. Well, that's really true. I mean, and that spreads out to even him creating the time and Vanity Six exactly. and all, all the all the bands and things that he did were all different sides of himself because he was such a creative guy. You know, he had to pick one thing to really make it in in the business you know you have to be very specific and he was really good at at doing that being a you know putting the point to your record you know and and your personality and your fashion and you know everything he knew how to be a star yeah i uh <laughs> one of my best friends from high school was your publicist for a little bit for an awards campaign. And she normally would represent people that would not be good fits for this show. So she never like pitched me anybody or anything. We've known each other since we were 16. So when I heard that she was representing the two of you on this awards campaign, I said, whoa, you're representing somebody that I definitely want to have on the show. <laughs> like, can can you get them to come and do uh, Bullseye? It might even have been called The Sound of Young America. This was 10, 12 years ago. And I, I remember she said, I think I could get them to do it, but they cannot talk about Prince because they're not allowed to because Lisa said Prince is a fancy lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> is that what she and, said? That's hysterical. But that's true. He was. He was a very fancy lesbian. It's true. <laughs> And so I had never, I never actually got around to reading the interview where, uh, and you truly did say that. I did. Uh, Lisa. And in that bit, the question was, was Prince gay? And the two of you were kind of laughing about it, but also being very sincere and saying that it was much less about his sexuality being, you know, that he was interested in in guys, but rather that his his gender expression was so kind of fluid and expansive that he gave what, you know, I, I mean, I guess Janelle Monet is giving Prince vibes, but like uh, mm -hmm. you know, Prince was giving what I would associate with Janelle Monet vibes. Mm -hmm. Like get getting out there in a tuxedo where the hips are a lot bigger than the waist. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I wonder what, what the two of you thought of all that when you were like around him working on a day-to-day -day basis. Like he was, he was doing a lot. You know, I never, and I, I know my gay boys <laughs> and I know my closeted gay boys 
Prince was not one of them. He just wasn't. He was very heterosexual. And this kind of nods to what we were just talking about, that he preferred the beauty of women and representing that kind of beauty on his own body than trying to look like Steven Seagal, if that's your form of macho. You know what I mean? He had no interest in dumbing his physicality down. He was extremely connected to the expression of his, but he was like a, he was like a, a ballet dancer. People used to think that, you know, Peter Martins was gay. Great ballet dancer from the 80s and 70s. Straight as an arrow, but on the stage, there was such feminine beauty and masculine about the way he moved. And a lot of dancers are like that. Prince had that. He just, he just did. He just happened to feel like he looked much better with makeup on and smell better with some female perfume on and have his clothes maids and wear heels because he wanted to be taller. You know, I never, ever got a sense that he was uh, gay. I mean, that's why it's funny to call him a lesbian because he loved women. Do you know what I mean? And he loved being a woman. And he loved being a woman, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I mean, maybe my favorite Prince song of the entire oeuvre is If I Was Your Girlfriend, which is like a song that is kind of about... This very thing we're talking about. Yeah, and and not just the physical part of it, but a kind of like jealousy of the intimacy of women that men often struggle to have with men, mm-hmm. and like that is such a that is such a different thing from being gay. Like that is it's a totally different not about thing. sexuality; no. it's about gender. Yeah, like, totally, exactly right. Like, if I was your girlfriend, it's not about him wishing he could be a girl and have girl sex with a girl. It's about wishing that he could have a closeness of that kind. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, know, talking about picking out your clothes and things like that, where it's like girls are like that. And, um, And he was like that with his girlfriends i mean like with me you know he'd be like oh can you put this on or you know he he was interested and he would think he would get so excited about it you know it's sexy you know he'd get all put his voice on and you know talk about being sexy and he used to joke about with me and lisa because you know we were lesbians and really didn't spend every day and every hour trying to look at our best we were down to being musicians and getting down and dirty as young girls too and he'd walk in done up you'd see me if you know i'd kick all your if i was a woman he'd say i'd kick all your if i was a woman (laughs) yeah yeah and you're right you would (laughs) there's no question about it you win you win (laughs) The two of you worked with Prince. I mean, there's no period in Prince's life and career where he wasn't recording, you know, a 
a song a day or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, the two of you worked with him during a period where he, where that was probably at its peak. Mm-hmm. Did you ever, like, when you were in the middle of that life where you were like, oh, we're going to rehearse for three hours and then we're going to record for six hours and then we have a show tonight. Were you ever like, dude, can we just have a pool day today? Like... Can we, can we like ease off for the afternoon? No, not really. No, we no, knew it was important, especially not not to his face. <laughs> I mean, sometimes he wouldn't. You know, he would have to travel and do something, and we would be left to rehearse on our own. And we would definitely rehearse, but we would, you know, take a nice long dinner break, or you know, we would talk about going out to the lake and hanging out. But but no, we were pretty much as dedicated as he was at that time, you know, that was what we were doing. Wendy, I'm, I was really struck that you just said that, that you knew it was important because obviously it was important, but I mean, when you're in a river of that, it's interesting to me, impressive to me that you were able to have that kind of perspective on it. I did. I, I did. I mean, going into that situation, I knew what an important artist he was. So, and I knew what he was writing, and I knew what was coming out of him. So, going into that job, I knew this is no joke. This is this is going to be an artist that people will remember like the greatest musicians of all time. I know it, and so just the energy off that and what we were all doing and what I felt we were contributing at the time, which was like this freedom for him to explore all this stuff in him. I knew that what we were doing, recording constantly, performing constantly, playing live constantly, were all part of this uber thing. And I didn't and moan about any of it. The only thing that I do and I will admit to is that he, and I guess up until the very end of his life, is that, you know, he did it with us for years and years and years. You'd get these weird phone calls at, at the wee hours, the witching hour, which is like four in the morning. And he'd be like, what are you doing? You've got a plane to catch and, you know, at 6 a.m. they're getting your flight or, you know, come down and cut right now. And you'd be like, so there were a few times where Lisa and I at that time where the phone would ring and we'd be like, don't answer it. Don't answer it. Don't answer it. <laughs> it instant anxiety. Instant. Oh, you know, no. Don't answer it. We know it's coming. We need a good night's rest. And then, of course, it would be like, we had a flight for you at 7 a.m. from L.A. to Minneapolis and you missed it, so you have to leave at 11. So, But we got a few extra hours in there, you know. But, yeah, I would avoid really late phone calls sometimes. I wonder if each of you could pick some contribution that you made to one of those songs or one of those records uh, that you are particularly proud of, whether it's a, you know, something you did as a player or something you contributed even, you know, more holistically. God, there are so many songs. I think if I was to think of it in terms of the iconic nature of one of the songs i'd say that you know and it's not and, and it's not my favorite track but i would say that it 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 couldn't have happened without the input and that would be purple rain i just think that 
No, we didn't write it, but we helped create what it is. And I don't know if it would have had the same popularity if it hadn't had our interpretation of what it was that he was asking. Musical interpretation. Tell me what you mean by that. Like, what what were the specific choices? Well, he came in with this very simple country song, this idea I had, you know, and it was really only kind of the chords to, was it the verse or the chords to the chorus? I can't remember what it, what, what he presented first, but it felt very simple verse. and yeah, probably the chorus. And it felt very simple and it was but we could, he came in and he just said, you know, I, I have this idea and here are the chords. What do you guys got? What can you do? And so he taught every one of us, Matt and Lisa and me, and of course Mark and Bobby kept the meat and potatoes of it going. But I felt like it needed to be more beautiful and complicated. So I stretched the chords and made these different inversions and reharmed the you know the second chord of the progression and came up with this sort of chord progression that was not there that did not exist prior well, it to sounded the song more like um, instead of just straight triads kind of chords um, it sounded almost like she was playing in an open tuning it was like these big sort of you know like a harp or something, you know, and Prince just loved it, and that's why the guitar... It opens the track, and you know what the song is based on those opening chords. Yeah. That song was recorded, like the record that we all knew, that most of that record or all of that record is like one of the first times you played that song out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine a song like that is like, it's like a board recording from yeah <laughs> from a show that was like, hey, hey guys, we got this new tune we just worked on. Right, yeah. and it was at rehearsal. I remember we were at rehearsal and we came up with it and then we played it at First Avenue to try it out. It's like a comedy act. You know, let's go try our act out. <laughs> and there it was, Purple Rain. It's crazy. Wasn't that your first gig? Yeah. That was Wendy's first gig, too. 
kind of weird. That must have been something, Wendy. <laughs> I know. Yeah, talks- That's my question. That's my follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been something. It Talk was. about us. It was. He came up to me and he goes, are you nervous? And I was like, uh, no, yeah. You played a lot of the songs that you worked on with Prince, uh, without Prince as the revolution after he passed away. You went out on tour. And, you know, you're well-paid professional musicians who mostly work from home or like a studio you own and have kids Mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. Why did you decide to tour? Like touring is hard. And I'm (laughs) sure that all of you had very complicated feelings about Prince and that time in your lives. So why did you choose to take it on the road? We just, um, I mean, the short answer is cheesy. It's just because of love, because we needed each other. We love each other as a band and as people. And the loss of Prince was really shocking and really a, a devastating feeling. You know, it, it, we didn't just grieve him as a person, but we were grieving the loss of possibilities and things that we always kept, you know, we always kept that plate spinning, like something might happen and we would do little things here and there, you know, just play with each other. And um, so, you know, just playing all the gigs was a grieving process, a healing process for us and as it turned out for a lot of the fans. Yeah, we tried to conjure the feeling that we all had when we played together for the audience so they could sort of, as well as us, have a sense of that moment in time. And it was sort of a form of relief and a way to keep him alive in a really vibrant way for a moment. And we chose songs that absolutely did not need like a real lead singer to kind of do Prince. We didn't, we, we didn't want to, we wanted, we chose songs in our the repertoire that really the audience could only sing out loud to us mm-hmm. and group vocal group stuff. And-, and maybe we had, you know, um, uh, a, a guest vocalist come out and do, you know, lead the audience onto Kiss, but it wasn't like, okay, and here's the person that's, going to be replacing him we didn't want any of that it was just literally let's all just see if we can conjure him in this room and have some sense of relief at this crazy loss and that was really there was no money and there was nothing it was so down and dirty that tour was like put together with spit and spackle it was incredibly uncomfortable and raw and awful and great. And is it going to happen again? I don't think so. I, 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 don't, I don't think that that's in the cards. But it was a great time for us to do that together and to heal in some way and to get closer as, as a band. But, you know, we, we're missing our master and commander, and it just it doesn't make much sense. When you were doing that tour, were you – able to feel proud of what 
you personally and you as a band had accomplished with Prince? Yeah, the audience let us know that. Yeah, we didn't. It was a surprise in a way that how important we were to people, you know, the fans that would come and and we do meet and greets after the shows and there was a lot of tears and it was always like, I don't know, a very deep experience. And um, just to know that he, uh, with us, he touched so many people and we did gradually feel more and more proud, like with each gig that we were, we kind of, the grief turned into more joy and, and pride and that sort of thing. But it was, it was difficult, especially at first. It took a, it took a while before we could come off the stage smiling. You know, we'd come off the stage feeling pretty bummed out. I'm glad that you were able to eventually. I mean, yeah, I think of all the, of all the smiles you've brought people, you know what I mean? <laughs> Even smiling through tears. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was a process. It's like I said, and then Prince happened. That's that's <laughs> that's what our life is like. And then Prince happened. Well, Wendy and Lisa, I'm so grateful to you for taking this time and even taking a little bit of extra time. And um, it was such a, a pleasure and, a, and an honor to get, to get to talk to you. I hope you'll come back again and we can talk about more of this stuff we didn't have time for. Would I, love I really it. really appreciate it. We'd love it. Absolutely. Thanks, Jesse. Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman, everyone. Such a thrill to have them on the show. You can hear their music on Cruel Summer, which is airing now on the TV network Freeform. You probably have already heard all the classic Prince records they worked on, but summer's a good time to revisit those. Also, Wendy and Lisa's solo records are really good. Let's go out on another single from them. This is from their 1987 self-titled debut. It's called Waterfall. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created in the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I just moved, and I, I swear to God this is true, I cannot find my monitor. My computer monitor is somewhere, but I don't know where, so I can't use my computer. It's a real mess. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. The Go Team have a brand new album called Get Up Sequences Part one. It comes out on July 2nd. That's this week. There's a single called A Bee Without Its Sting out now. The Go Team are so awesome. You can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there, and I think that's it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.